Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, it's Mike Smith filling in for Simi today on a wild day at the B.C. Legislature. Speaking to you from the CKNW studios in Victoria at the Legislature building. I just barely managed to get in here this morning. The entire building is surrounded by anti-pipeline protesters. They had shut off every entrance in and out of the building, not letting anyone in or anyone out. As far as the media go, trying to get into the building to cover the events today, today's supposed to be the throne speech in the first day of the session. Uh, they just weren't letting people in, and security was not a whole lot of help. They weren't helping media get through. Although, I'll tell you, I did manage to get through with the help of a couple of security guys who helped me get through the crowd uh, to get on the air here, but I just barely got on the air here this morning. Here's our hot question for you today. This is all about the Coastal GasLink pipeline. So straight up question for you. Do you support this pipeline project? Would you say yes or no? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail and tell me what you think of all these protests. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604 331 2899. Send me an email today to Mike at CKNW.com. When we come back, we'll talk about the Coastal Gas Link project. And here's something to remember. The protests that you see at the legislature block and also blocking roads, bridges, ports are people saying they stand with First Nations opposed to this project. I'm just a citizen, all right? Hey, what's the deal? That bridge is blocked too. This is unfair. Like, I have to get across to the bridge. I gotta be at my gym in six, at six o'clock. That bridge is blocked. This bridge is blocked. What's the deal? You know, you, are you trying to garner support? Because this is not the way to do it. You know, if I don't get there, I don't teach. So I got probably 40 people waiting for me. What I can tell you is that this, we can't let you across this bridge right now. We've got people on the bridge. It's, it would be unsafe to let singular cars okay, through. Fair and enough, the fastest all of way. You people, I mean, I, I understand, okay, that you have a political point to make. You're against the pipeline, all that stuff. And you want to do this for your outlook on life. And I'm not arguing with your right to have that outlook. I might even agree with your outlook. But the point is, I need to get across the bridge. No. How am I supposed to do that? No. Okay, this is Mike Smith in for Simi. That was last night when anti-pipeline protesters blocked a couple of key commuter bridges in Victoria. And that was a Czech News report there of a guy getting stuck behind the blockade just trying trying to get to work. It has gotten wilder today. I was broadcasting to you today from the CKNW studio at the BC Legislature, which right now is totally surrounded by protesters. They have locked down just about most of the doors, every single door around the building is uh, plugged up with protesters, not letting anyone in or out. I just barely managed to get through. A couple of security guards uh, helped me sneak through the crowd there. So I was able to get on the air this morning. I thought at one point I wouldn't be able to host the show this morning because there were so many protesters just blocking every single door, but did manage to get through. Today is the first day of the new session of the B.C. Legislature, it's supposed to be in session right now for a proroguing ceremony by Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin. I don't see any evidence that that has happened yet this morning, so that appears to be delayed. Meanwhile, the throne speech is scheduled to happen this afternoon at 2 p.m., but I'm not sure how she's going to get in here to read the throne speech. Uh, she'll probably try. Maybe some security can help get her through. But I'll tell you what. It is a wild day at the B.C. Legislature as we continue to cover this uh, dramatic situation for you. It's all about the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline, of course, uh, being built in northern British Columbia. The hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation oppose that pipeline. But remember, though, that all 20 elected band councils of First Nations along that pipeline route support this pipeline, including the elected band council of the Wet'suwet'en 
First Nation. Let's check in now with Candace George. She is a member of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. She has Wet'suwet'en and Deketh uh, heritage. Uh, she's an entrepreneur who supports the pipeline. She's very bravely speaking out on it for us today. Reached her in Fraser Lake, British Columbia. Candace, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, tell me why you support uh, this pipeline. Why do you, why do you support it? Well, I am from a very small community, and uh, where I'm from, we've actually been hit um, quite a bit. Um, we've lost our mine that has been shut down in our area, and some of the um, in our forest industry as well. Um, jobs have been cut back, so there's been job loss multiple times, and multiple people in our communities have been um, have have been dealing with hardship because of their job loss. Right, and, and so yeah, yeah. So we come from a small community that only has so much, so many jobs in in the band office, right? So we don't have too much in our area. Okay, have some people <laughs> been able to find work on the pipeline? Yes. Actually, yes. Tell, tell, tell me about that. There's what kind been of agreements that have been signed through Notley with them, and I know that there is a camp that is set up in Lajac, and I know that members of both communities and surrounding communities have been hired so far, and are are working. Right. What do you think about the protests that we've seen around British Columbia? The legislature right now, Candace, is surrounded by protesters. Uh, what do you think about that? Because the protesters say that they're standing in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people. You are a, Wet, a Wet'suwet'en member. What do you think about them standing, uh, opposing this pipeline that you support? You know, I I feel that I feel that it, it's it's I get why they're doing it. I understand yeah. that, but I also it's hard for me and it's hard for my family to see and recognize because there's internal issues and yeah. internal conflicts within the community and these conflicts cannot be resolved with from outside support. The internal conflicts that are within the communities in Wetsuit needs to be resolved by Wetsuitan people and Wetsuitan people only without without outside support without outside nations because what's going on is everything that's going on. I get it and I understand their fight, but I also understand that they're causing more division among Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples. And as an Indigenous person myself, we we know that we we suffer from a lot of discrimination and prejudice already. And so what I fear is that this, it's going to only get worse and... And I just want other people and other nations to know and recognize that Wet'suwet'en people need to resolve this issue themselves. Let them discuss in our way, in our potlatch system, to resolve these issues. Speaking to Candace George, she's a member of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, and we're talking about the Coastal Gaslink Pipeline. Uh, she supports the project. As, as you heard her describe there, the community is divided on it we're seeing the uh, protest blockades that have taken place around british columbia the last few days candace and i'm speaking to you right now from the bc legislature which is essentially locked down uh from Mm -hmm. protesters outside have a listen to this i want to play you a short clip here of natalie knight i spoke to her yesterday she's one of the spokespersons for the people who are blockading the uh, the port of vancouver and Dwayne, the the clip i'd like to play is the final one in the rundown there and here she is natalie knight here I, I suggested to her yesterday on the show that because all 20 First Nations along the pipeline route have signed benefit-sharing agreements on this project, I suggested to her most Indigenous people are actually supporting it. And here's what she said to me. I would say that's incorrect. There's no information out there that suggests the majority of Indigenous people support these projects. So all, fact, all, all 20 of them support it through their elected councils. Again, I would uh, advise you to consider that there's nothing democratic about having a system of governance enforced upon a group of people. Um, That's not democratic when you're forced to adopt a system of governance that you did not hold previously. Uh, So 
I, I refute um, the claim that it's a democratic system to begin with. Uh, and also, huh. you know, if you pay attention to um, grassroots communities, there's a lot of support for the uh, hereditary chiefs. Okay, Natalie Knight, she is uh, one of the spokespersons for the blockaders uh, speaking on the show yesterday. Candace, when you hear that, when you hear her say that, that uh, the blockade leaders are saying that, well, Indigenous people don't support this project and uh, they don't recognize the, the democratic right of these band councils to support it. What, what do you think of that? I think that every individual band council has um, run things differently. There are some band councils that have hereditary chiefs that are elected members of those band councils. Right. And, for example, like in our community, we do have elected chiefs who are elected hereditary chiefs who are council members in right. Stalatin community. And another thing, I also know that there are 13 hereditary chiefs, 13, and a select two to three or four or five chiefs do not speak as a collective for all hereditary chiefs. That's what I know. There are more hereditary chiefs. And speaking to Candace George, she's a Wet'suwet'en member. She supports the Coastal Gaslink Pipeline. One of the things that that I've noticed in this dispute is we're seeing a, a lot more kind of young, educated, passionate leaders in Indigenous communities standing up in favor of these of these projects. People like yourself, for example. And what I, what the message that I hear from them, and I'd like to hear in your own words what you think, is that a, a lot of these Indigenous leaders are saying not say, are not saying we want to let these companies come in here and run roughshod and do whatever they want in our traditional territory. What we want to be is at the table so that we can be part of the project, tell them what we th- protect the environment and make sure the project is done in a way that respects our, our rights and our cultural heritage. W- would that be fair to say? That would be fair to say. Yeah. I was actually a part of some of the environmental studies that took place out on the territory. Yeah. And I know that, um, also, that communities all across the board, um, Coastal Gaslink co- contacted each community and had asked for for knowledge holders and people who know the land and territory to um, join in in these studies so they can voice their opinion and share what is what needs to be protected and what needs to be saved and what medicines are important. That's yeah, it was a part of. Um, the environmental studies that they were doing over the last right. few years. Right. Mm-hmm. Candace, I, I think it's uh, I think you're very brave in, in speaking out the way you are because I know it's a tough it's a tough position to be in the, in the middle of a dispute where a community is divided. So I, I want to thank you. Thank. Go ahead. What were you going to say? It is. It is really tough because you know I. It's really hard because there's a lot of lateral violence that that. People, Indigenous peoples are experiencing, and lateral violence is happening on both sides. Those who are for the pipeline and those who are against the pipeline, the lateral violence is horrible. And what is that? What I'm do you mean by that, violence. lateral lateral violence? What is that? The lateral violence? Well, for someone who's speaking up and wants to, to do good things for their community and to provide economic stability, financial stability, um, those who want the pipeline to go through are getting you know, backlash and they're called, they're called sellouts. They're called traitors, you know, from, from other people. And they could be either from the other side who don't want the pipeline. They could be complete outsiders who are called upon to rise up. And these people who don't know the internal issues don't know. So they, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Candace, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. That is Candace George. She is a member of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Speaking to you from the CKNW Bureau at the BC Legislature, it is a wild day here in the provincial capital as anti-pipeline protesters surround the legislature building, not letting people in or out of the building as they protest the coastal gasoline pipeline. The throne speech is scheduled to take place this afternoon, so we're watching it all very closely 
for you. Let's check in with my colleague Vaughn Palmer, the very fine columnist at the Vancouver Sun, who managed to get into the building this morning. Vaughn, thanks for coming in. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Mike, and, and a pleasure to see hear you on the air on CKNW. The listener needs to know that there was some real drama this morning at about quarter to ten. I'm inside the buildings. I'm looking out the big windows over the courtyard at the back, and the door is blocked, and I'm looking down at my friend Mike Smith, who's yeah. standing there. And I look at my watch and I go, God, he's got to be on the air on NW in like 15 minutes and he can't get in the building. And, you know, you're normally a calm person, but you were standing there like throwing sweat off your forehead like a cartoon character. So congratulations on however you got into the building. I gather you managed to find an opening and get in. Uh, But that was the first bit, one of the early bits of drama of the day that uh, that I was able to witness. I was able to squeeze in. I walked around the building and I found one door where there was a few fewer protesters at this one particular door. They still tried to block me, but I was able to kind of squeeze through, and a couple of the security guys uh, were able to get me through as well. So kudos to them. Uh, the, the security are doing their best there, but they seem to be out, outgunned here, outmanned. They, they were doing their best, Mike, and I think they got overwhelmed because what happened was initially they blocked all the entranceways to the buildings, but that big courtyard entrance at the back that the school groups used to get in, and it's right by the MLA parking lot, so it's the way a lot of the politicians come in. Initially, the guards were coming out, and they were escorting people through the line, yeah. but eventually the, the mass on the step got so big, and the guards just didn't have the staff to be sure right. of people being safe. So they stopped escorting people through. As a result, a lot of people did get in to the building. They either came in early as I did or they found a way in the way you did. Uh, But I gather some members of both caucuses and some staff did not get into the building in time to start work this morning. Okay, I know you spoke to a few people inside the building. Premier John Horgan, for example, you spoke to him, right? I spoke to the Premier. I asked him if he had trouble getting in. He said no. He came in early. He did not have any difficulty. And I asked the Premier if he's confident. Uh, I mean, they've already postponed proceedings today to 1 o'clock. I asked him if he's confident that everything will go ahead at 1 o'clock. He said yes, he is confident that... It will happen. That means the lieutenant governor arriving here, Janet Austin, to prorogue last year's session, which means adjourn it, and then start the new session, reading the speech from the throne. All that is supposed to happen at 1 o'clock, and the premier says he's confident that it will. All right. I know you also spoke to NDP MLA Mike Farnworth, who's the government house leader. What was his take? Well, we asked Farnworth a few things. We asked him, first of all, you know, for his reaction to what's going on out there. He really, really tried to keep the tone low. He said, we've had protests at the legislature before. They looked at the situation for the House starting at 10 o'clock this morning to adjourn the old session. They decided that after consulting Sergeant-at-Arms and security staff, it wasn't a good idea. So they put it off to 1 o'clock. He said, We've had late starts in the past, so he said he doesn't think it's a big deal. He was asked if all of his members got here, and he said he didn't know if all of them were able to get in the building. He knew that they had more than 30 members at the caucus meeting today. The New Democrats had a the New Democrats had a full-blown caucus meeting this morning that ran an hour while outside the windows of the caucus room. You could hear the demonstrators chanting and shouting. In fact, Justine Hunter and I had the windows open so we could get the sound as well. <laughs> Some staff came and closed them because they couldn't get any work done with this racket going on in the background. <laughs> Okay. Um, it got pretty tense out there. I mean, yes. there was a lot of j- a jostling going on. I mean, there's a video yeah. on, uh, on, on Twitter of Richard Zussman, our colleague at Global yeah. News, trying to get through the crowd. He got, he got bounced around. I know you spoke to a couple other MLAs who sort of got a little bit jostled there. What about George Chow, the uh, Minister of State for Trade? I understand he did he get knocked down or something? Well, yeah, we'd heard originally that George had actually been knocked down, so we yeah. talked to him. So he says what happened is that he was trying to get in. There was jostling going on. His way was blocked, uh, but he said he tripped and fell down. He said okay. he wasn't pushed or anything, and he said he's fine. He's not injured. Um, we watched for some time while the oldest member of the legislature, Ralph Salt, Ten stood waiting to get in the building. He's, what, 86 years old? Um, he's not light on his feet anymore, uh, and I wouldn't expect to be at that age. Uh, so he waited quite a while, because I think he was worried about being jostled. Well, yeah. Uh, but a colleague showed up, and they did escort him through the line.
lines. A little while later, not long after that, Lana Popham, the agriculture minister, arrived. Uh, again, the MLA parking lot. She parks. Yeah. She walks down the walkway toward that entrance. And she didn't get in. She had people shouting at her. And by that point, the guards were saying, it's just not safe to bring people. These are cement steps. People are pushing. Uh, it's not safe to bring people in. So they stopped bringing people in for a while. What do you think about the government's hand or, or at least the legislature's handling uh, of this situation? I guess it the buck stops with the speaker, Daryl Plekis. Did you have a chance to talk to him today? He spoke briefly to us. He said he believes that they will have the matter in hand. He said they're moving on it. Uh, Plekis was here on Sunday, so he's been engaged with the clerk of the legislature in what to do about this. Yeah. The jurisdiction over the legislature and its precincts, the grounds, is the speaker's ultimately. Right. And he's in charge of security as well, so he has to decide. Uh, our understanding, Mike, is that what they're doing is they're assembling the material to apply for an injunction, and they may also be in contact with the Victoria Police for backup. The great risk if you apply for an injunction in court is you got to have the evidence that there's a problem because if you don't, the judge might send you away, which would be a huge victory for the protesters. So they want to be sure they've got everything in order. They're taking pictures. They're files. They're presumably talking to people who've had trouble getting in the building. The public has blocked access yeah. to the legislature. Yeah. Well, on throne speech day, as you know, it's mostly invited guests anyway. Yeah. Oh, I did run into a cabinet minister, Rob Fleming, the minister of education. He said he has texted his invited guests today saying, don't bother coming. It's just not worth it. And there is a security issue as well. What do you think of this whole situation for Premier John Horgan and his government? I mean, this is a protest over the coastal gas link, natural gas pipeline that Horgan supports. Uh, going against, I guess, these protesters saying that he doesn't direct the cops and how to do their job, but if people are going to break the law, uh, there's there's going to be an enforcement action for injunctions and that kind of thing. What do you think about the way he's handling it? And is there any sort of political risk to him on this situation here? Oh, I think there's a big political risk. You know, in opposition, the position the New Democrats took on things like this was that hereditary chiefs, uh, have custody of the traditional territory of First yeah. Nations, and yeah. they're the ones you should listen to. In fact, when they opposed the NDP, the Pacific Northwest uh, LNG pro project, right. one of their allies in the First Nations community was Namox, the hereditary chief of the Wet'suwet'en, who was now leading the protest against the NDP's project. Right. So the NDP has been on both sides of this issue over the years, and I don't particularly agree with and don't agree at all with what they, they're trying to do here, the hereditary chiefs. But they do have a point when they mm -hmm. say, you know, these are positions the New Democrats took in the past. Um, of course, the government is not happy that it's happening on throne speech debate day. They want us to be covering all the wonderful things in their legislative agenda. And you know what we're going to be covering. So um, they're not they're bothered by that. Um, at the end of the day, though, I think if the premier stands up for the pipeline project yeah. and says it should go ahead, and doesn't bend to these protests, I don't have much doubt where the public is on this. I don't think the public... I, I saw you last night on social media tweeting about the blocking of the two bridges here in the Capitol, right? You're not going to build public support doing that. When they block the ferry terminal, politically, that's stupid. No, I don't you're, who you're, they think they're appealing to. You're doing the opposite there of building support. I think you're squandering support with these yeah. type of tactics. Sometimes if you talk to the protesters, you'll say, well, this is not about convincing the public. This is about putting pressure on the government to cancel this pipeline project. But I, I think that these, yeah. these type of projects just make Horgan dig in even firmer in his support for it because I think he knows that the project is popular and supported by a big majority of British Columbians. We're also, Mike, seeing something that I don't recall on one of these things before, which is you're seeing First Nations people yeah. and First Nations leaders coming out and saying, we want this project. Right. It's good for us, for our people. Like, you don't, normally, First Nations community, they don't all agree and you don't expect them to, but you don't see what we're seeing now, which is First Nations leaders themselves, Indigenous people themselves coming forward and saying, we want this project, we're going to share in the benefits, we're going to get the jobs. That, to me, is a big political change in British yeah, Columbia. I agree with you. Jock in Parksville, hi. Uh, hi, Mike. I'm sure glad it's you doing this today because I think you have common sense about you. And I was so glad to hear you interview one of the Wet'suwet'en because on the global news and CTV, nobody's talking to any of the Wet'suwet'en who all want this, as you know. 
they're just interviewing the protesters who say they're backing the Wet'suwet'en. So I really think it's ridiculous myself. Okay, well, thanks for the call. Well, I did speak earlier on the show, Vaughn, to Candace George. Mm -hmm. She is a Wet'suwet'en member. Uh, she's an entrepreneur. She supports the pipeline. Yeah. And she's, like we were talking earlier, there's kind of this new wave of young, educated Indigenous leaders who are beginning to and willing to step up and say, you know what, we're going to support these projects as long as they're on our terms yeah. and that we're at the table and we're part of it. Crystal Smith, we were just talking about her on the break, right? Dynamic young in Indigenous chief uh, who supports uh, the this big LNG project. And it's kind of different from what we've seen in the past. I think as the way forward, if they're getting genuinely good deals and they deserve right. them, um, you know, the line I heard was that the old way of doing stuff, which to some degree the hereditary chiefs in this case stand for, the old way of doing stuff generated a hell of a lot of legal bills, but it didn't do much else. Uh, I think these so – you look at some of these benefit agreements. They're, they're in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Yeah. And they're spread over the whole life of the project. So you're getting a piece of the action – People trained, people getting jobs. Um, I think it all adds up, and it's very encouraging. Uh, if we're going to ever in our society have a higher standard of living for First Nations people, it's going to be them being able to use their land right. uh, to essentially create economic activity and jobs for their members. Sharon and Burnaby, hi. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying I, I phoned into the buzz line this morning. I totally disagree with all these protests. Um, I really feel that if you have the support of all the bands and they've all signed the contracts that, you know, this whole project has been, um, they've talked to the indigenous people along the route, they've got signatures, they've got the contracts going, they're going to get involved. And the same with the TMX pipeline. It's basically, you know, 120 out of 129 bands have all agreed to the whole thing. And it right. seems to me that this oil is going to get the market one way or the other talk to those poor people in saskatchewan who've had two oil trains basically derail within the vicinity of their small town and they're up in trains okay. is that how you really want to transport oil these people seem to think that the oil pipeline or the oil is just going to shut off tomorrow it's going to be years and years and years and years and in the meantime okay. let's help support our indigenous people who want to have the jobs and build up their communities plus the canadian public who are going to benefit from all the stuff that's happening we are a resource okay. nation thank you sharon vaughn your thoughts yeah, one of the encouraging developments this week as well is that the federal government is going to enter into formal consultations and negotiations with First Nations for them to own the expanded TMX pipeline. Uh, that, yeah. as a as an economic benefit for First Nations, would be, a, again, a huge step forward. Yeah. And the, the money that came out of it would not be just jobs, but it might be able to deal with some of the other problems they First Nations have, like drinking water and housing and other areas where they're lagging behind the rest of Canadian society. Yeah, just basic poverty in some of these very remote reserves where there's yeah. been downturn in other industries. And for a lot of First Nations, they see this as kind of a lifeline. And like I said, as long as it's on their terms. I mean, if you read up on some of the projects that have been approved around the coastal gasoline pipeline, for example, there are some very remote uh, poor First Nations in British Columbia have signed on to this pipeline, and they've got contracts to build things like work camps. There's one in northern BC. They're building a work camp to build the pipeline on the site of a former residential school. Yeah. And they're saying this is transformative for us. You know, this is kind of a, a new way to lift this up. Um, so I think there is growing support among First Nations for these type of projects, as long as it's on their own terms. Rick and Langley, hi. You got to go quick, though. Actually, you know what? We're out of we're out of time, Rick. So thanks thanks for trying. Um, what what happens now? You're going back upstairs to see what's going on, yep. and do you anticipate that this uh, this throne speech is going to get read this afternoon? There, the government is very very confident that it's going to happen. I don't think they'd be as confident as they are if there was much doubt. But we will see. They have to get the lieutenant governor into the building. Uh, they want to round up their other members. They're negotiating to find a door to bring everybody in. Yeah. I don't know if they've gotten that yet. What about the tunnel? Isn't there a well, secret tunnel? We're you not going to talk about that on the air because uh, <laughs> I think they blocked <laughs> for it already, security anyway. reasons. They would sooner we didn't mention that there are other options this side of lowering him into the building with a helicopter so we shall see there's no votes today right i mean is there any danger no. of the government losing a vote or anything no. today no no you don't vote on the throne speech here right. usually anyway and you certainly don't vote on it on day one 
Vaughn, thanks for coming in. Bye-bye, Mike. Thank you. That's Vaughn Palmer, the uh, columnist at the Vancouver Sun. Do you remember that Peloton ad for the home exercise bike that came out just before Christmas? This became known as the notorious Peloton wife ad. Everyone will remember uh, this commercial when the guy gives his wife one of those Peloton exercise bikes. So many people said, oh, this is such a misogynist ad. It's some kind of male fantasy for guys who want skinny spouses. It was just brutal. That ad was filmed in Vancouver with local actors. Such a backlash to that Peloton ad. But guess what? Guess what? Peloton this week in their uh, second quarter financial earnings, a big success, it appears, at this ad campaign. Revenue up 77% year over year, up to $466 million. Uh, the number of connected fitness sus- subscribers, these are people who pay to stream classes while they're on their Peloton bike, that is up 96%, more than 2 million members in total. I'll tell you what, Peloton is very happy these days, despite the backlash it got for got from that ad. Have a listen a little bit here now to the ad. Okay, you ready? Yes. Now. A Peloton? Give it up for our first time ride. All right, first ride. I'm a little nervous, but excited. Let's do this. Five days in a row. You surprised? I am. 6 a.m. Yay. Rising with the sun. That was totally worth it. Let's go, Grace in Boston. 50 rides. She just said my name. A year ago, I didn't realize how much this would change me. Thank you. This holiday, give the gift of Peloton. Oh, man. Did people get angry about that ad or what? They are just hammering Peloton for that ad. Now, remember, it was filmed in Vancouver with local actors. Here's uh, Sean Hunter. He is the actor who played the husband here. I started getting messages, and people started using harsh words sexist, misogynist, uh, a symbol of the patriarchy. And I, and I, whoa, this is, these are harsh things that are not associated with my character and not associated with me in any way. I want people to remember the positive elements that happened in the commercial. We're promoting fitness. We're promoting personal health. And that's what I want people to take away from it. Okay. Everyone remembers the commercial. Everyone remembers the backlash. But now check out the results on Peloton's bottom line. In the last quarter, Peloton reporting a 61% increase in sales and marketing expenses to $160.5 million. The firm in a conference call with financial analysts this week just thrilled with the company's performance in the last quarter. They point to those Christmas, uh, the Christmas ad campaign as a big reason why. So. What does this mean now? Does this mean that there's no such thing as bad publicity? Let's check in with Christina Daves now. She's a publicity strategist at PR for Everyone, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Christina. Hi there. Thank you. Interesting with this, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. What did you think of that ad when you first saw it? You know, I I have a lot of really good friends that are Peloton junkies, and and if you know anybody, I don't know if you do personally, but they they are addicted to these Pelotons. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we have our best friends go from Michigan to New York City on a family trip to take a class in the, you know, the flagship store in New York. Wow. So, yeah, they do. I mean, these people, the Peloton lovers are Peloton lovers. Uh, and maybe I was a little swayed because of that. Uh, my friends who are bikers look like that actress. They're, they're lean, they're fit. I looked at it more from the fitness and health perspective than the, oh, everybody wants a 115-pound wife. Yeah, right. I thought of it as like, hey, here's this new great thing. And when she looks so nervous, yeah. if you've ever been on a Peloton bike for the first time, you're nervous. You're like, okay, well, what am I in for? Okay, so it didn't strike you as like a misogynist no. or sexist ad. I didn't get that. Yeah. I re- not. I mean, I see where the other side did come from. I I do get that, yeah. but knowing the the Peloton people, I think that's you know it's 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 like a group. You know, they're they're really into it and that, and they love their Pelotons. Okay, I guess this is one of those things where the ad 
obviously missed the mark for a lot of people. It was widely yeah. criticized. But when you take a look at Peloton's financials here, as reported this week, does this mean that maybe the controversy around the ad actually helped the company and got them free advertising, do you think? Well, of course it did. And yeah. they're, they're a relatively new product. So not everybody, before Christmas, not everybody knew Peloton. After Christmas, I think yeah. everybody knew what a Peloton <laughs> bike was. Okay, there's that old saying, there's no such thing as bad publicity. I think it was P.T. Barnum right. sa- said that once upon P. a time. P.T. Barnum. Yeah, you're, yep. a publicity, you're a publicity expert. Do you agree with that? There's no such thing as bad publicity? I, I, I do, and I, I've had some personal experiences with that. And so some of my quote-unquote worst publicity has led to some of my biggest sales. Uh, just because somebody doesn't like it doesn't mean somebody else is not going to like it. So you're actually helping push that message out to people who could, in fact, be interested in it. Speaking to Christina Dave, she's a publicity strategist. Her company is PR for everyone. Do you think that this was a case where this company just kind of got lucky with this ad? Or do you think that when they made the ad, they were planning that, well, maybe this is going to be a little controversial, but maybe that's not such a bad thing? Or did they just luck out? I think they, I, I don't think you could plan for that. Yeah. You know, you really, I have clients ask me all the time, how do I make a viral video? Right. Well, you, you just don't know what's going to take off. Uh, I am curious because they do focus groups and they, they have people assess the ads. You know, did, was there some feedback, you know, behind closed doors about, well, this might, might not go over well? Or was it, you know, did the advertising team, say, hey, this is a winner. This is going to be great. And and at the end of the day, it was a winner. It, it did attract the people who were buying Peloton bikes, and we see it in the numbers they just released. Oh, yeah. I mean, the numbers are huge. And the, the company's chief financial officer reporting this week that they had great holiday sales at Chris, around Christmas time driven by the marketing campaign. So this was an ad that was came out before Christmas, and everyone was saying, what a disaster this ad is. Turns out, apparently, to be the opposite when you take a look at uh, Peloton's uh, results and their financials. Do you think that the controversy uh, around this ad campaign shows that, I don't know, maybe it pays off to be controversial sometimes? Well, sometimes. And again, they what I think they did well was the way that ad was designed you know, it was for someone who wanted to get fit. Obviously, she is fit. Maybe she was, yeah. you know, they don't tell you the whole story. It's 30 seconds. Maybe she was bored in her workout routine. So her husband thought, oh, here's something. Here's a great new piece of equipment. Uh, so, you, you know, you don't get the whole story that some people, and obviously there were other people like me who saw that side of it, who were like, hey, this is awesome, this Peloton bike. I'm going to buy this. Like, this is great. And, and their memberships are up. Everything's up. Okay, do you think that, what kind of messages or sort of lessons are, are learned from this experience with this ad? Here you got an ad that kind of turns into a bit of a viral ad for, we were told, all the wrong reasons. People are angry and upset about the ad. Then it turns out that the company does gangbuster results in, the, in, their, in their quarter around Christmas time. What kind of lesson is that for other advertisers, do you think? Well, maybe those advertising agencies really know what they're doing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they're they trained in this, and that that's what they do. And there was a team that put this together. And it was interesting because I just did all the Super Bowl ads and, you know, the wins wow. and the and the losses. But same kind of thing. If you're still talking about some of these ads two and three weeks later, we're talking about a Peloton ad that started running the beginning of December. Mm. It's now, you know, mid-February. So we're still talking about it in the media. Okay, that's exciting for you to be involved in this in the Super Bowl ads uh, this year. What is the has the ad game changed with the era of social media? Oh, I think it has. It absolutely yeah. has because these ads are shared, and there's people commenting, good, bad, or indifferent, on the Peloton ad, which was mainly bad on social media, but it still drove sales. So you're you're opening your business up to millions and millions of potential customers through social media that you did not have access to years ago. It's a fascinating thing to watch unfold with all the controversy around it. And boy, it turns out that uh, controversy made Peloton a lot of money, it appears. Sure did. Christina, (laughs) thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, that's Christina Daves. She is a publicity strategist. Her company is PR for everyone. 
Right now, let's talk about the rollout of ride-hailing services in Metro Vancouver. It's been a bumpy road here, especially in the city of Surrey, where city bylaw enforcement officers were writing those $500 tickets against Uber drivers. This fight has ended up in court. Uber keeps on winning. Uh, The taxi companies keep on losing here. The Vancouver Taxi Association, they went to court to try and cancel the operating licenses of Uber and Lyft. They failed at that. Then Uber went to court to get an injunction against the city of Surrey from writing those bylaw tickets. Uber won that fight, and Surrey now backing off away from those tickets. Don't look now, though, because uh, Lyft, the other big ride-hailing company, saying they are ready to expand their operations in Metro Vancouver. They're heading into Surrey, too. Here's Lyft's BC General Manager, Peter Lekomsky. Well, today we basically announced that we're expanding our operating area to not only serve the entire city of Vancouver, but also all of Richmond, New West, as well as North Surrey. Own into North Surrey to start, and then they'll probably expand from there. So now you've got Uber and Lyft coming to the city of Surrey. Not everybody's happy about it. Some people still have concerns, including my next guest, Surrey City Councillor Doug Elford. Councillor, thanks a lot for coming on. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. What are your concerns here about ride hailing? Well, first and foremost, it's here to stay. We, you know, uh, we have to abide by the law and uh, we have to manage it and deal with uh, ride hailing in our city. I like them. Some of my concerns are, um, well, I have many concerns, but one, one of my concerns, of course, is the impact on uh, the taxi industry in, in Surrey. And because of the families and how many people live in, in my community and literally are my neighbors, and the decisions they're saying that's going to impact their their income quite significantly. So that's one of my concerns that I have. Have the taxi companies already taken a hit? Like when you talk to your neighbors there, you talk to the people you know in the taxi business, are they reporting a a downturn in business? Yes, up to $100 a day, they're saying. And that's quite a concern for families, right? And, And, you know, as a counselor, you know, you have to stick up for your community and the people in your community. So... Uh, this is really, really, I'm worried about some of the families in our community. Right. What about the people in the community who wanted ride hailing, though? I mean, you know, I had the mayor at one point say that uh, he thought most people in Surrey don't want ride hailing, which I thought was completely divorced from reality. I think it's pretty clear most people in the city want it. Well, I, yeah, I guess that's a, a matter of opinion. I, you know, it's, I guess the people wanted to to stay, and we, right now we have to kind of deal with, uh, with what we've got, and it is going to be here, and and so people have got what they wanted. Okay, do you think the city should have been writing those $500 bylaw infraction tickets? Do you think that was a good thing for the city to do? Well, I I actually am not in a position to comment on that right now. My lawyer says I can't really. (laughs) I know that sounds weak, but I'm not really in a position to comment about the tickets right now. Okay, that does sound a little weak, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you. I mean, you had, yeah, I mean, you had Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, you know, basically saying we're going to hunt you guys down or write up these tickets. Are are you well, afraid? Of, a, are you afraid I'm of getting sued? Concerned. I'm a little concerned about the judgment, yeah. in the sense that the precedent. I, I don't know where we're going to, what kind of precedent this sets for other businesses as well. Yeah. That's really my concern here in this case. Okay, how do you um, think we I, can? Yeah, how do you think we can make the, the, the situation fairer for the taxi companies? Like, I've, I appreciate your point that this business is here to stay now. I think the mayor has indicated that as well. He says it's time to kind of step away and back down on this thing. And Well, obviously, the mayor's council has set out some conditions on the, for the intermunicipal uh, licensing system um, where, you know, they want some conditions for uh, fairness for the taxi drivers. And I think they're working on some of those conditions now. They met some of them and not all of them, but certainly boundaries and insurance rates are pretty inequitable and things like that. So hopefully we can get some sort of level playing field. But I've also uh, have a bit of a concern about the climate and the environment and the fact that, you know, we're throwing more vehicles on the road and, uh, studies say that, uh, you know, just increase, uh, right heel increases GHG emissions. And we're all declaring climate emergencies, but then we're joyously celebrating more vehicles on the road. And that's a, that's a bit of a concern of mine. And, 
I'd like to see some more stringent regulation on the ride hailing in the taxi industry in terms of net zero emissions by a certain date. You know, that require old. like uh, require electric vehicles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Let's be bold about it. If we're going to have ride hailing, we're going to accept it, and let's let's take on this climate issue as well at the same time. Speaking of Surrey City Councillor Doug Alford about ride hailing in the city of Surrey, you mentioned the boundaries issue, and and I think that. That is a crucial issue because right now, with the way the taxi system has been set up, with these municipal boundaries where a taxi is not allowed to cross a municipal boundary and pick up a passenger, so if if you get a if you take a passenger outside of your operating area, you can't get a passenger coming back, which I think is just is ridiculous. Whereas the ride hailing companies are allowed to operate wherever they want throughout the whole metro region, and I'll agree with you that that doesn't seem fair. But isn't it up to the taxi companies to sort that out? Because the Vancouver Taxi Association has resisted taking those boundaries down. They want to protect their turf. Yes, I, under, I understand that's, that is an issue amongst itself. But, yeah. you know, in order for the riding to work throughout the region, I think boundaries have to be eliminated regardless. Right. right. So, I mean, do you think it's time for the taxi companies to kind of face reality on that? They're going to have to, yeah. Mike. They're going to have to. How about the insurance rates? What's your concern there? Well, you probably have know the numbers better than I do, but I've been told by ca- uh, ta- cab drivers they're paying fifteen hundred dollars a month for yeah, their the, for their insurance. The insurance and, rates do seem a heck of a lot more expensive for taxis than for ride hailing, and, and I'll agree with you that doesn't seem fair either. No, that doesn't. That's not very fair in that sense either. So, you know, that needs to be leveled out as well. Okay, where does this go from here now? When do you think this uh, this metro-wide license uh, system will be in place? How long is that going to take? Well, it depends on the bureaucracy, the speed of bureaucracy, Mike, but hopefully the sooner the better. I know all the mayors are on board. They definitely want to expedite this. Uh, I, I don't want to lay blame at the foot of the provincial government, but I think they may have dropped the ball on this one by issuing these the, the uh, permission prior to everything being managed and developed. From what I understand, all the municipalities and staff are working to a an equitable system, and then they just drop this bomb on us, and then next you know everybody's it's well it got bumpy. Let's just say. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. that. Is Surrey City Councilor Doug Alford? Well, you heard my uh, comments or my discussion in the earlier segment with Surrey City Councilor Doug Alford, who uh, expressed continuing concerns about ride hailing in the city of Surrey. Let's check in now with Anita Huberman. She's the CEO of the Board of Trade in Surrey. I know she's a supporter of ride hailing. We'll also talk about the Patello Bridge announcement yesterday. Anita, thanks a lot for coming on. Good afternoon. Okay, Doug Alford, the Surrey City Councillor there, says he's still concerned about the unfairness of the system uh, to the taxi businesses in the city of Surrey. I know you support ride hailing. What are your thoughts on, on whether this is a, we got a fair system right now for taxis? Well, absolutely, there needs to be a level playing field for the taxi industry in terms of boundaries, insurance. Uh, We've been advocating for that as well. But the way this whole ride-hailing industry has uh, evolved in Surrey is very unfortunate and harms the brand of our city as being a destination to support and bring business in. I mean, with ride-sharing, we need different ways to get around and uh, we have a lack of transit and transportation options, so we need ride-hailing. And so, uh, you know, number one is, uh, you know, we, we absolutely want a level playing field for the taxi industry, but number two, we can't uh, stop ride-hailing uh, within British Columbia. We need it. Okay, how do you think it's operating so far? I mean, you got Uber operating in the city, or parts of it, and Lyft uh, just announcing this week they're going to expand into Surrey, too. Do you think it's working well in the city so far? Well, I've taken Uber uh, within the city, and absolutely it works well. And I've taken the taxi uh, as well, and and that works well. We need Uber and Lyft to operate all throughout Surrey, um, especially in areas such as uh, uh, parts of Cloverdale, parts of South Surrey, where transit is compromised. I mean, uh, we have a huge transit crisis in Surrey. Okay, speaking of transportation, let's talk about the Patello Bridge. So yesterday, the B.C. government announced the contract to build a new Patello Bridge. I don't think anyone would disagree that the bridge is old and needs to be 
replace. What are your thoughts about the plan so far as announced by the B.C. government on this? Well, number one, we're so pleased that finally the Spitalo Bridge is uh, going to be uh, in construction mode this year. Uh, we've been advocating for that. Uh, but we wanted to open with six lanes. Uh, by 2050, there's another 1.3, 1.5 million people moving into Metro, and many of them are going to be moving into Surrey, south of the Fraser. We need to start building our transportation infrastructure for the future, not just in Ketchup up mode. It's just one element of what we need in terms of moving people, moving goods. But uh, the BC government, they have a leadership opportunity to open this bridge with six lanes and work right. with the city of New Westminster and the city of Surrey to make it happen. Okay, I agree with you there. I mean, this, the, the, the existing Patello is four lanes, right? Right. And, and the government yesterday said the new bridge will also be four lanes. So are right. we missing are we missing an opportunity here? I mean, you know, build it right the first time. And they say that there's the capacity to open uh, or expand it with the additional two lanes to six lanes in the future. Well, I mean, the bridge is going to be ready potentially by 2023. Uh, we have 800 to 1,000 people moving into Surrey in itself a month. Not too sure about New West. I mean, you know, let's start planning together. We need to collaborate together uh, to ensure that we have the pathways, the roadways to make it happen. Okay, speaking to Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman, in order to do that, what do you need to do? I mean, have you made your concerns known to the government that, look, let's build a six-lane bridge right off the bat? Oh, repeatedly, and the B.C. Yeah. government has responded, Claire Trevina, um, you know, and she respects our position, but uh, she has said it's going to open with four lanes with a pedestrian uh, pathway, a cycling pathway, and then in the future, an additional two lanes. But we're going to stay steadfast and resolute in our ask. Uh, we're just in the midst of sending uh, her yet another letter. Uh, but really, we want the B.C. government to take this leadership opportunity and work with the city of New West and the yeah. city of Surrey. It's not too late uh, to open that bridge with six lanes uh, yeah. in 2023. Yeah, now's the time to make the decision before you start building yeah. a four-lane bridge. Let's get real here and build a, and build a six-lane bridge. When, when you talk to your constituents and the people in the city of Surrey, uh, do you hear support for a six-lane bridge? So our fourth Surrey Road Survey was just released last week, and one of the number one priorities is, yes, we want six lanes for this Patello Bridge. We want the Patello Bridge, um, a new Patello Bridge. Uh, it's one of the top three uh, infrastructure project priorities for our members. We have about a 25% uh, survey response out of 6,000, so, I mean, that's a good sense of uh, how our members are thinking. Right, and 79%, as I understand it, want, want a six-lane bridge. Yeah. Right, right, okay. Okay. Um, thank you for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is Anita Huberman. She is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. In the wild day at the B.C. legislature, still unclear if the throne speech scheduled for this afternoon is going to go ahead. It's not really clear right now uh, whether or not the Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin has actually made it into the building. The building, of course, has been surrounded by anti-pipeline protesters for much of the day, not letting people in or out of the building. Now, a lot of the MLAs have managed to get inside. I barely got through and into the building this morning, into the CKNW studios uh, where I'm speaking to you from the B.C. legislature right now. But a lot of people had trouble getting in. So it's unclear whether the lieutenant governor has been able to make it in. I'm trying to find out for you. Meanwhile, Premier John Horgan has scheduled a news conference for 3.15 p.m. this afternoon after the throne speech. He has now canceled that, put out a news release saying that that's canceled until further notice. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson stepping into the void there. He says, okay, the premier does not going to do a news conference at 3.15. I will. So he's announced a, a news conference for 3.15, Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader. Keeping an eye on a wild day at the B.C. legislature for you. And as soon as I know, you will know uh, what's happening uh, upstairs here uh, with the throne speech uh, scheduled to take place later this afternoon. Let's talk about no-fault auto insurance now. And... Uh, let me introduce you to a personal injury lawyer. Uh, his name is 
Eric Goodman, and he wrote an open letter that he called an open letter from an ambulance chaser. It says, my name is Eric Goodman. I am a personal injury lawyer, or is the NDP, and Mr. E.B. would have you believe, a greedy ambulance chaser. He pushes back at the government's new no-fault auto insurance. I thought, we better get this guy on. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Your, your thoughts on this? this is a pretty provocative letter you wrote here, and I, I can you know I can tell you you know you're really fired up about what the government's doing here. Tell me your basic concerns here about what the government's been doing when it comes to the the, the reform of the ICBC and no fault. Sure. Uh, well, there's a lot of miscommunication out there. So the the point of the letter I wrote is to get a few facts out to the public. And and like I say in my letter, I readily acknowledge I'm I'm a flawed messenger. I'm well aware. That many people are going to dismiss what I or any personal injury lawyer has to say. I know their listeners who are fed up with the bus and the TV ads who think, you know, most injury claims are fraudulent anyway, and I'm little more than a, a parasite whose only purpose is to drain ICBC of its precious resources. <clears throat> but I'm confident that anyone who's had the misfortune of being injured in a car accident and either had the experience of dealing with ICBC alone or had the experience of having a lawyer help them get fairly compensated, they're nodding their head as they read my letter. And right now, the only source of information the public is getting about no fault is from politicians and from ICBC. And it makes sense to me that people should hear from those who have had firsthand on-the-ground experience with ICBC and have developed a pretty good idea of what no fault is really going to look like. And, you know, you can accuse me of having an agenda, just as I would accuse the NDP and ICBC of having one too. But, you know, these are the facts. And and facts don't have agendas, and this is what the public and some of these medical groups need to understand. Right. Uh, David Eby has produced a beautiful, glossy brochure about all the benefits injured people are going to have access to once no fault kicks in. Now, right. when Eby first introduced the injury caps last year, he touted an increase in no fault treatment benefits from 150000 to 300000 and weekly disability payments went up as well. That all sounds very generous, and it's certainly distracted from the fact that, in return, someone who suffers a brain injury now may only be entitled to a maximum of $5,500 in compensation. But there's even smaller print here to consider. When asked how many times ICBC paid out the full $150,000 to an injured claimant the year before, Mr. Eby had grudgingly acknowledged that the number was 42. 42 out of tens of thousands of claims. And now Mr. Eby's okay, so, shiny new diversion is the talking point that benefits will now increase to $7.5 million. Right. Well, why not make it $15 million? Because the figure he's throwing around is neither here nor there for 99.9% of people, and it's being used to distract the public from what's really going on. Right. The, the $7.5 million is a maximum, a maximum, maximum. a maximum limit. And right. I guess presumably if you were catastrophically injured in a brutal crash, and end up as a paraplegic or something, presumably you'd be in line for a big payout, maybe like that. But like you say, the vast majority of cases we obviously fall under that cap. But sure. do you think that do you think the government's kind of using that kind of that kind of talking point? Oh, we're going to pay you seven point five million dollars if you're injured in a car crash to kind of distract people. Well, that's right. Because let's yeah. talk about what no fault means. And and just right. to correct you on that, Mike, it's not a payout. You're beholden to the whims of an ICBC adjuster for the rest of your life, and I'll, I'll get to that. But what no fault is... Well, isn't it a it doctor, though? I mean, an another way that the government's, I guess, communicating this is they're saying, like, no, it's not going to be ICBC telling you what you can or can't have. We're going to be listening to your doctor that, that tells okay. ICBC well, what you and, and that's how it apparently has always been as well. Um, and it sounds great on paper, but this is the reality, Mike. No fault eliminates any compensation for a victim's pain and suffering unless the injuries are catastrophic, like quadriplegia. And the NDP's assurance of increased benefits, it provides little consolation to an injured victim who will now be at the mercy of an ICBC adjuster that can still cut off physiotherapy or disability payments as they see fit. And last year, ICBC introduced their care model. They call it a care model. Increased benefits, they said. No user fees. Well, listen to your doctor. You get a doctor's note, we're going to give you treatment. That all sounds well and good until a few months of physio go, go by and you ask ICBC for an extension. And let me give you an example. I've got a client who's still off work. She's struggling around the house after her accident six months ago. Just last week, her physio emailed the adjuster to request funding for 10 more physio treatments. 
in the email, the physio makes clear our client is still off work. She's in pain. She, she's limited in her mobility and her ability to, to, to maintain the house. And in response, the adjuster said, ICBC does not pay for pain management and suggested the physio simply show our client the exercises so she can do them herself at home. So much for the new care model. And okay. ICBC's response on this was not an outlier. I see similar examples of this on almost a daily basis in my practice. And this is the point, Mike. Most people yeah. have heard and many people have personally experienced how poorly ICBC treats injured claimants. Right. And, and, and ICBC employs a stable of doctors who have been repeatedly discredited by the courts as biased and ICBC advocates, yet ICBC keeps using them. This has been the culture inside the ICBC monopoly with lawyers and judges to keep them in check. Now, just imagine how much worse ICBC's conduct will get when there's no one left to hold them accountable. Now, to your point, Mike, you say, well, EB says, don't worry, because with no fault, we're replacing the care model with an enhanced care model. And guess what? Instead of lawyers and judges to keep ICBC in check, I'm going to appoint a fairness commissioner. I I mean, George Orwell could not have come up with better monikers himself. And when EB says this time it'll be different because we're going to change the culture at ICBC, he's either fooling himself or he's trying to fool the public so he can win next year's election. Okay, well, do you think they're they're also fooling the doctors of British Columbia and the Disability Alliance of British Columbia? I mean, I spoke to the president of Doctors of BC on the show the other day, and she said she likes what she sees here. She represents advocating for patients who are injured in car crashes. She likes this increased enhanced care model. Uh, and yeah. they're on the and they're back in the government on it. The Disability yeah. Alliance of BC. This is the largest advocacy organization for disabled British Columbians. Again, they represent a lot of people who are injured in car crashes. They say they like what they see here. Are they being sure. bamboozled by the government here? Uh, yes, I believe they are because they liked what they they saw uh, from the last brochure about the increased three hundred thousand dollar benefits. But you see how that actually. Uh, unfolds on the ground. Uh, for instance, I've got a, a quadriplegic 25-year-old girl who last year she was a passenger in a car that crashed. She's in the hospital. I meet with her. I meet with the family, and I introduce them to an occupational therapist that I've been working with for many years on a variety of different files on ICBC claims. And obviously, this family, this client is entitled to occupational therapy to ease in the transition back to her home and to be the liaison with ICBC for funding. The adjuster on the file says, you know what, I know this OT. I don't like her personally. I'm not going to agree to fund the treatments and the care unless you go out and you find another OT. I'm not paying for her. Never mind that the, the, comfortable, the family became comfortable with this particular OT. Uh, this adjuster... What's OT? What's OT? Occupational therapist? Sorry? Say that again. What does what OT stand for? Occupational therapist. Right, yeah. okay. And, and this is important as well, and, and it, this is something that the, that the doctors obviously aren't particularly concerned about, and, and the physiotherapies, but yesterday EB conceded a very important point about his no-fault scheme, and this was reported by Rob Shaw in the Vancouver Sun. Right. The headline of the article is, No-Fault Insurance System to Scrap Payments for Future Earnings. And here's the gist. If you're a 20-year-old college student working part-time at Starbucks and you become permanently disabled in a car accident, your next 45 years of lost income will be determined by what you were earning as a part-time barista at Starbucks. Never mind that one day you would have gone to medical school, become a doctor, or you would have gone to trade school five years later and start a civil engineering business. If you're a single mom, you plan to re-enter the workforce once your kids were older and you're injured in an accident, you're not entitled to any future wage loss at all because... As EB would suggest, who's got a crystal ball? How could ICBC possibly know what you would have been earning had the accident not happened? And the answer is, the courts can. And the courts do, based on evidence from vocational consultants, economists, friends, and family. Judges assess an injured victim's future loss of earning capacity in every applicable case. And as a lawyer, my job is to make that case on behalf of my client when ICBC refuses to be reasonable. Let's go to Joe in Pitt Meadows. Hey, Joe. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's my view that it's a rare day, and I, I can't frankly think of anything where the government can run uh, a business better than the private sector. I fully am in favor of full compensation. If I'm injured in an accident for some reason or other, it's not my fault. Why should I be capped? Why should I not be entitled to full compensation from the, perp- from the person who did me wrong? And I think, you know, thirdly, I think the lawyers are the scapegoat here. If ICBC made a reasonable offer to the, to the uh, claimants, There'd be no reason to go to court. 
ICBC's yeah. issue is that they don't like the award the court are, the courts are giving. The courts are the impartial right. uh, party here. And the last thing is on trust. Yeah. You know, it was uh, less than a year ago, uh, Evie's going on about the dumpster fire, the dumpster fire. And most recently, I, I thought he was making comments like, well, you know, we're almost going to break even this year. When he gave us the impression that it was going to be decades away from uh, anywhere being close to the break even. So okay, trust that, is, is, is gone. Thank you for the call. Well, he did say that ICBC on, uh, on, on track to turn a small profit this year. But he also said that if the government didn't do this, go to no-fault auto insurance, you would have been looking at a thick 36% increase in your auto insurance over the, over the next five years. And I think that's how they're going to try and sell this to the public, is that they're, they're not only going to increase the benefits for people who are injured, but they say they will also cut your auto insurance next year. So they're going to freeze it at the current level this year, and then next year they're going to give you a 20% cut in your auto insurance. I mean, that's a, uh, you know, that's a spoonful of sugar there to make the medicine go down. And, and I wonder, Eric, for, for your thoughts, how, how do the lawyers fight against this? I mean, if the government gets the public, got the doctors on side, the disabled groups on their side, and they're giving people a 20% cut in their auto insurance, I think you've got a tough fight in your hands. Right. And all we can do is tell the truth and try and uh, make sure that uh, the public knows the, the real facts. And, you know, this caller hit a couple points right on the head. You know, the first is fair compensation and the, pr- the principles yeah. behind that. You know, um, going back to that article that came out yesterday about no future wage loss, right. David Eby's response to this is pretty staggering. He says compensating an injured person for lost future earnings is not what insurance is for. Well, well, this is what tort law is all about. It's to put a person in the same position they would have been in, but for the other driver's negligence. And, you know, British Columbians prided themselves in a system that held bad drivers responsible and made an injured person whole. And it's chilling that our attorney general, you know, who's recently lost nine constitutional cases in a row, does not understand this fundamental principle. And while the NDP broke their fundamental promise to keep this system intact. And, you know, in the article, EB acknowledges that there will be, quote, legitimate cases in sort of a gray category where some people will be negatively affected by the change. It doesn't sound very fair and reassuring to me. And, you know, nobody thinks they're going to be that person until they are. And so the reality is, is that this so-called enhanced care model is window dressing on a decision to strip people's rights and to exponentially increase ICBC's bureaucracy and power okay. Okay. And anyone who gets injured under this new no-fault regime will be entitled to nothing more than some treatment maybe some wage loss all of which is to be solely determined and cut off by icbc without any oversight checks or balances by the legal system do, do you think, and you know just imagine mike yeah. you're, you're severely injured you're disabled and for the next 40 years you are solely reliant hat in hand on ICBC to cut your check every couple of weeks so you can afford food and rent. There's no settlement. There's what? no moving on from a claim or moving on from ICBC. Your life is beholden to the whims of an adjuster till, till death do you part. Welcome one, more to no que- one more question for you as we run out of time here. Do you, think, do you see any vulnerability for the government here to have this no-fault system challenged on a constitutional challenge or otherwise? Well, we're looking at that, but it's, it's doubtful. But, you, you know, looking at Manitoba, I do want to mention Manitoba here because that's the no-fault system. We've got less than a minute left. Sure. This is the system EB says he's trying to emulate. Under no-fault, the driver that hits you has the same rights to recover the exact same benefits you do, even though it's his carelessness that caused the accident in the first place. This is the fundamental purpose of our law, to cur- encourage individuals to take responsibility. And, you know, this matters. The data from Transport Canada shows that Manitoba is by far the highest casualty rates in the country. And you talk to people from Manitoba and see how they're treated in that province. You go on insurei.com. It's a website for auto insurance reviews. It's worth seeing how they feel. They're, tr- they're being treated by their company, okay. uh, that- their insurance monopoly. The comments are quite striking. Thanks a, lot um, for com- thanks a lot for coming on. Out of time, but thank you for yours. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, thank you. That is Eric Goodman. He's a personal injury lawyer. Uh, fighting back on the government's no-fault auto insurance.